we're in a message on First Thessalonians. And the big idea for this series is uh, we are a present, future people. We're a, 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 as a follower of Jesus, we live counterculturally to the world around us. And as a result of that, it will always result in some form of opposition or pushback. The culture is pushing us in the opposite direction. So the natural reality of a fish swimming upstream is resistance. But in the face of that reality, as a present future people, we respond to it with grace, hope, love, hard work, joy, and humility because of the hope that we have in Christ's return one day. So that's the idea. I'm going to start with the story. In the heat of World War II, uh, the Allied planes were coming um, down. They were burning. They were crashing. They were being fired way too much. And the reality was is that they didn't know how to fix it. And so they put a man named Abraham Wald on the job to research and decide where extra armor could be placed on the plane to protect our pilots. And he started with the planes that returned to the base. So he started researching those, and he began placing a mark on all of the bullet holes from the planes that returned from battle. A plane would return, he'd find the holes, he'd place the mark. Simple process, and then he'd document the whole thing. After some time, having pulled in enough data, he told the manufacturers to place extra armor in the areas where there was statistically fewer bullet holes on the planes returning back. Why? Well, he, he concluded that since the planes that returned had not been shot down in battle, that the holes that he was seeing were just random and not the result of precise enemy fire. The planes that went down, he reasoned, were being shot in the places that the planes that returned were not. So it was the holes that he wasn't seeing in the planes that weren't returning, that needed extra protection. And that decision, that act, turned the tides of battle for the sky. Robert Sutton calls this vuja day. If deja vu is seeing something for the first time, but having this sense or this feeling that you've seen it before, then the reverse, vuja day, is seeing something that you've seen over and over and over again with fresh eyes. And I'm beginning to believe that the church in our context needs a little vuja day. I hope that's all right for me to say. What if our predominant church context, what if in this culture, we're patching up all the wrong bullet holes. What if we're reinforcing all the wrong things? We live in a culture that has incredible access to the gospel. Incredible access, more than any other generation that has gone before us. There's programs, venues, books, blogs dedicated to church growth and success. We have podcasts that talk about culture and then teach us how to walk with Jesus. And then we have got our, we've got our space phones, which give us access to the entire internet so we can look up commentaries. There's, and not to mention, there's like church and Christian influencers and TikTok evangelists, entire church industrial complexes dedicated to manufacturing 
Christian songs, artists, and offering the consumer a variety of goods and services to fit their own version of spirituality where they can just stamp Jesus on it and call it Christianity. There are voices convincing us that we need better marketing, that Jesus proverbially needs a better PR guy, that in order to reach the next generation that we need to become more relevant. Pastors are lured into the trap of practicing a form of creative plagiarism where we scour the culture and encourage language and the context and look for the trendy conversations and then alter the conversation just enough to make it sound original so that it sounds like we're hip and engaged with the times. Church leaders are pressured into the expectation of image expression and management and projection to cultivate the impression that we're ferociously sought after by important and influential people. And yet every generation is leaving the church in droves more than the generation has before it. What if we're reinforcing the wrong things? This year so far, 17, we heard this at a retreat we were at a couple weeks ago. This year so far, 1,700 pastors have left the church every month in the U.S. Divorce is at an all-time high, and the rates within Christians is compellingly similar to those of the secular culture. Literally insert all of the statistics, right? Anxiety, depression, suicide, disillusionment, it's all there. The list goes on and on. And I know that's a heavy way to start a sermon. You know, I left for, you let me guys not go to a Sunday for one week, and then I come back with fire in my bones. I'm ready to preach. Let's go. But what if we're reinforcing all the wrong things? So right around A.D. 50, Paul had headed out on his second missionary journey, and um, he meant to go to Asia. That's where his intention was to go. And then he ends up getting this vision from the Lord of a man calling him to come to the region of Macedonia. So he pivoted, he changed plans, he goes into Macedonia, and eventually he steps into the city of Thessalonica, uh, which is in the region of Macedonia. And he spends time with them. The scriptures say that he spends three Sabbaths with them in Acts 17. Three Sabbaths. So three weeks, give or take. And then in the midst of this newly forming community, people came to know the Lord. He began to communicate the gospel to them. They began to believe this reality, the story of Jesus, in a way that seeped down into the core of who they are. And that reality the, the reality that he planted the gospel resulted in a church being planted. And then, three weeks later, opposition and pushback started to arise. People like Jews and Greeks within the city were, did not like what Paul was doing, so they started hunting him down and capturing, taking captive some of the people in the community. And because they wanted to make for sure that Paul could continue on his missionary journey, they, they forced him out of the city so that he could continue to proclaim the gospel to different cities. They let him go. He was forced out, compelled to leave. So he goes to Berea. And in the city of Berea, the people that didn't like him in Thessalonica heard that he was there doing the same thing. And what did they do? They hunted him down in Berea. They came to Berea and started stirring up commotion there, which pushed him out of that city. And eventually he ended up in Athens. And we know that he spent some time in Athens. And he was, he was there for quite a while. And eventually he became weary 
of the well-being of that original community in Thessalonica. He was concerned. Rightfully so, he left them in the midst of lots of chaos. And so what does he do next? He sends Timothy. Remember, this isn't a, a culture where you can just pick up your phone, FaceTime them, and be like, yo, how are you doing? He couldn't send them a DM. So it took time for him, for him to figure out what was going on there. And then when Timothy returns, he brings a surprising report that not only are they surviving, they're thriving. And then we get to the book of First Thessalonians. He writes this letter in response to the good report that he had heard from Timothy. And in the first chapter, look at the way that he describes what has been the result of their faithfulness. So in chapter 1, verse 7, just pick it up in verse 7, it says, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. He says you became a model. That word is the word typos. It's where we get the word typology from. They had become a kind of form or a mold, an example, a model that other churches hundreds of miles in the opposite direction surrounding them in other regions could take and pattern themselves after they had become a model. Churches all over began to match their pace to this small, newly forming community. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, this isn't explicit in this text in particular, but what we know from the book of Acts and scholars and theologians is that this statement everywhere was alluding to the reality that because of this community, a door of opportunity, the message of Jesus broke open and was spreading across Europe. This was a turnkey moment in the gospel message reaching the furthest corners of the known world at that time. How? The Thessalonians were a pivotal moment in the history of the early church. You read the narrative of the book of Acts and the momentum from Acts 17 onward just starts snowballing. Things just keep picking up. And, and now the crazy part is about this, at best, this church was a year old. Probably just about a few months. They had no degrees, no formal training, no surplus of resources. They didn't have programs, buildings, a youth ministry, or an impressive Instagram. A year ago, they did not exist, and now they are a model to the churches. And these churches are looking towards them from hundreds of miles away because of their faith. The grace, the kindness, the compelling beauty of the kingdom of Jesus is resonating throughout the regions in Europe, expanding the gospel in seemingly impossible ways. How? How? That's the question I want to answer this morning. Many of the things that we assume are essential for building a movement of church and within the church they did not have, and yet there was something about their lives that was so compelling that it caught fire and spread. How did they do it? That's what we're going to try to dig into this morning. So let's start in verse 2. 
Let's get back to the beginning. Verse 2, it says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that little triad, that's one of Paul's go-tos. It's his, like, um, essentials for life in Christianity. He uses it over and over to describe what it means to follow Jesus. This is the nucleus of what it means to be a Christian. Notice, though, in this text, which is unique to Thessalonians, he couples those three words with three other words. Work, labor, and endurance. People sometimes think of faith, love, hope as virtues for the spiritual people, or they're ethereal things that are lofty and and just are, are reserved for mental ascent. Their feelings, they're internal. But what Paul is getting at here is that their deep trust in God, the love of God that they had experienced within them and their hope of eternity was radically affecting the way that they were actually living their lives. They had an embodied faith, hope, and love. So faith, hope, and love. Continue reading in verse 4. For we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. That word, brothers and sisters, it's one word, and it means siblings, essentially. It's, it's, the, um, it's the male form of a word, so it technically means brothers, but in their context, it was, a, it was uh, more generally used for kin or for a sibling of, your, of yours. So it, it's a familial word. And that word, sibling, Adelphoi, was considered the strongest kind of relationship that you could have in Greco-Roman culture. In our context, we feel like the strongest relationship is typically with your spouse, or maybe even your parents. But in their culture, it was your brother. It was your sister. This is deep familial language. And it's the language, the, the most predominant language used to describe when Christians would refer to one another. So they were a community that looked like family. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, stop there. So when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, he brought the gospel to them. Now, I'm sure most of you guys are aware of this, but the gospel, literally translated good news, is the story that God himself, the creator of all things, has come to rescue us from sin and renew the creation, all things in heaven and on earth, the cosmos, he's renewing all of it in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He's establishing his kingdom through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the story of the good news of Jesus. It's not just a get out of jail free card or fire insurance for when you die. It's the story and the reality that Jesus, yes, came lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could not live, died on a cross for our sins that we deserved, died the death that we deserved, raised three days later in order to bring us life. Yes, that is true, but he did that so that we could then become carriers of that life in the world, establishing little pockets of the kingdom around the world until he returns to renew it all, to make it all right. 
That's the story. He was communicating the story. But this gospel came to you not simply with words, so it wasn't just empty rhetoric. He wasn't just making claims about the gospel, but also with power. That's the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite from. So this, it's this idea of explosive power. Paul's words had effic- efficacy. His claims were backed with a tangible, felt, and experienced power. But what kind of power? That's important. With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So they received the gospel message, the very words and story of God in such a way that power came upon their lives. And not just any power, the power of the Holy Spirit. They experienced signs, wonders, healings, prophetic utterances, miracles among them. That's essentially what he's getting at when he's communicating about the Holy Spirit here. They experienced, you know, the stuff that we took about 17 weeks in a series to talk about. But also deep conviction. When they heard the gospel, it didn't just produce warm fuzzies. It seeped to the core of their being and resonated with profound power. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, the Holy Spirit puts steel in your convictions. And some of you have experienced that, where the gospel will be being preached, the word of God is communicated, the Holy Spirit enters into a moment, and all of a sudden, at the core of your being, you feel something resonating. And it's solidifying convictions. It's pulling you closer to him, calling you to get things out of your life, get them away so that you can run quicker to him. The Holy Spirit places steel in their convictions. Are you guys tracking? Are are we good? Cool. All right, let's keep going. Uh, End of verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your sake. So Paul steps in, lives a life that was resilient and faithful to Jesus. Now, obviously, Paul wasn't perfect, but he looked a lot like Jesus. And he lived a life that was resilient and faithful in the midst of a culture that was pushing him in the opposite direction and then invited the Thessalonians to do the same. But notice, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. I've come to understand this as the essential practice of discipleship. Invitation and imitation. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So he says, follow me. He's inviting them to follow him. And he says, but I will make you something. So there's this transformative process that's occurring. He's changing them from the inside out. But what is he changing them into? If you continue to read the Gospels, Jesus says to his disciples, a disciple's aim is to become like their teacher. In other words, in Dallas Willard's language, our job as followers of Jesus is to become like Jesus if he were you. Not just become like Jesus, like become like, because Jesus was a first century male living in um, like Greco-Roman culture as a Jew. And um, it would be really weird if like Kristen became a first century, or Kirsten, wow, I said Kristen. When have I ever done that? Never, wow. Uh, Kirsten, I've known you for 12 years? Wow. Um, 
No, who's Kristen? Um, sorry about that, friend. Um, so, like, if Kirsten was to um, become a first century Jew that looked like she lived in Greco-Roman culture, like, that would be really weird. <laughs> become like Jesus if he were you. And this is Paul's strategy, too. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. It's that word, imitate. This is discipleship. God's work in others. God uses his work in others to do a work in us. The greatest gift that you can give to anybody is your transforming self, who you were becoming in Christ. This is the essential reality of discipleship and newsflash that it takes a lot more than a Sunday service to do that. It takes a lot more than your early morning Bible study and then a midweek small group. You have to commit your whole life to this. We submit ourselves to the reality of Jesus immersing every corner of our lives. We submit our finances to him and say, is it, Jesus, is this the way that you would handle what you've given me to steward? We submit our relationships with him. Jesus, is this the way that you want me to interact? We submit the, when we travel, when we move, our job decisions, every aspect of our lives. And this doesn't happen quickly and unintentionally. It happens long and over time with intentional commitment to Jesus and his community. Discipleship is not meant to be done alone. So discipleship. Then lastly, let's continue on. How did they imitate Paul and Jesus? The last part of this verse says, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Severe suffering isn't referring to just the ordinary pains of life. It's not referring to the pain that um, might be unexpected, the suffering that we experience because of the dark and broken world that we're in. And I don't want to downplay that, but what he's talking about here is specifically persecution. See, suffering experienced because of our devotion to Jesus. The first Christians were considered atheists in society because the majority of the known world was a polytheistic society. So um, believing in one God, Jesus, put you on the outside of society if you didn't believe in all the other gods. It was radically countercultural. And spirituality was not compartmentalized in society like it is today. You know, we come to church, we do our spiritual things, and then we have our material things or whatever it is. It was integrated into entire societies. You immersed yourself and submitted to certain gods when you lived in specific cities. It was connected to business, the marketplace, to family, to social society and constructs. Like parties were worship services. Like you would drink as a way to connect to the gods and engage with people. So like this was a, a full spiritual society. And that to say that Jesus is Lord and to abstain from all of those things, to place faith in him meant, meant risk. It meant potential social embarrassment. It meant being ostracized from your family, losing business financial instability. It meant 
stoning, beating, and brutal killings. But they received all of that with joy. And not just the glass half full, like surface level optimism, an elative, celebratory joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And honestly, I believe that we need to recapture the art of celebration within our society. Not that we're being killed, and not that any of us would ever be killed living in the United States of America for our faith. I don't think that any of us might, maybe one day, but like at this point, that's not where persecution is. But persecution isn't you're either dying or it's not persecution. It's a sliding scale. How is your faith hindering you from functioning in society? How are you receiving that with joy? How are you allowing the joy of the Lord to reverberate out of you? In verse 8, it says, the gospel, the Lord's message, rang out from them. It's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. It rang out. Now, it's one thing for one person to express this, like, radical joy in the midst of persecution or whatever they're going through, right? And we're, we're almost taken back by it. But it's another thing when an entire community begins to function with celebration in the midst of opposition. Joy in the midst of suffering is one of our most effective witnesses. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you with that kind of joy? And then we read again in verse 7, So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, let's take a step back. This is the result, or this is what resulted in a model church. A community that looks like family. The gospel proclaimed, received the word of God being valued in convictions, the spirit-empowered community, discipleship, living like Jesus if he were us and inviting others to do the same, and suffering with spirit-empowered celebratory joy. And if we had time to keep digging, we would definitely find more insights. This text is just full of so much gold. But this is what comes to mind when he remembers them. And if he were writing a letter to us, what would he say? If he were writing a letter to myself, to our community, writing about my life or yours, to us collectively. And I hope this is all right to say, and I really don't want to come off as arrogant to hear my heart when I say this, but in these last few months as I've been praying and prepping these messages and like mapping this out, this has been my prayer for our community. That this would be true of us. That we would be a model church. I'm not saying that like, like we're gonna become the cool next hip, whatever. Like, and if God does that, like whatever. That's not my concern. But that we would become an effective model. That when people would look at us, they'd say, man, they look like family. Do you see how they carry themselves with that joy? Wow, the Holy Spirit is potent there. They're seeing miracles left and right. And we've seen some profound Holy Spirit moments in our community, but I'm praying for more. That we would see the gospel go forth in our lives and that we'd begin to intentionally disciple others around us. But notice... 
this like description of a model church, these things are pretty baseline. Like it's nothing unexpected per se. This is like the essential stuff that you'd expect or hope would be present in any like Christian, Christ-centered, Bible-believing community. Now, if we intentionally begin to cultivate these things in our lives, it's going to come with its challenges. So I'm not saying that it's easy, but it, it's nothing unexpected. Becoming a model church isn't some innovative stra strategy or fresh branding tactic that resonates with the next generation. It was a community who actually took the essentials seriously. My fear is that we will spend our lives doing a lot of good, powerful, and potentially important things that will get so focused on important things, but that will miss the essential things. This is our Vuja day. These things, the things that we have heard about over and over as believers, we need to look at the things that have been true for the church for thousands of years with fresh eyes and imagination. Read this quote with me. It says, so often the contemporary church is weak, ineffectual, is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocals sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. That was MLK. Wow. Feels like he could have been talking about today. It was a prophetic voice. The church in our context needs to reach back deeply into our roots, draw from our heritage, and recapture the spirit of the early church. They most definitely were not perfect, and neither will we be until Christ returns. Becoming a model church isn't about becoming something new. It's about becoming something ancient. It's about becoming something really, really old, it just feels new in the moment because we've sometimes forgotten it. And I'm not just talking about what we do on Sundays or the organized functions. I'm talking about the actual way we live our lives as the church, as the body of Christ. Let Jesus grip you at the core of who you are. Transform your soul and watch him take that and resonate it everywhere. Watch what he will do with a church that's fully surrendered to his way of life. To close, I just want us to notice two little words in the last two verses that I think can help us um, make this passage a reality in our lives. In verse 9 and 10, it says, They tell how you turned from God, to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Serve and wait. And Kirsten and Devin, you guys can come up. So that word serve is a present word. It happens in the moment, in the stuff of life. The word wait is a future word. It still happens in the present, but it's looking forwards towards something in the future. He's recognizing their present future posture. See, we, we serve 
Because service establishes the present and opens up a door in the present for the eternity, our eternal reality to be seen. Waiting pulls eternity down into the present. You need both. And this entire text is full of both serve and service and waiting moments, words. Serve, you got labor, work, endurance, love, uh, proclaiming the word with words, suffering, and then you've got faith, hope, and love, love, more love, more and more and more love, community that looks like family, the Holy Spirit and elative joy, like waiting words, eternal realities, present here. Some of us need to recognize we need to serve. But what do I mean by that? So there's this uh, parable in Luke 19, just stay with me, where Jesus says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. This is what he means. Service is about stewardship. Are you stewarding what God has given you? You only have one life. Are we leveraging it for our own purposes or God's? And then there's waiting. But how can like waiting for the eternal reality of Christ restoring all things actually affect my life in the present? Well, um, so as you know, Meredith and I went on vacation last week. And this is a, sp a spot that her family's been going to for years and years and years since Meredith was in diapers. And I can remember there's been points coming up to that moment where like we'd just be like, oh, I cannot wait for Catalina. Or like, I even said it because uh, Thomas and Lindsay came with us and um, I was like, are you guys stoked? And there'd be moments when I'd get at the end of a day, a few weeks out, and I'd be exhausted, just, you know, the normal stuff of life, long day, hard work. You get to the end of the day and you're like, man, I am tired. And then you go, ooh, like Catalina's coming. <laughs> oh, I can make it. We do that with vacation, holidays, and things in the temporal future of our lives. We allow those things to fuel us in the present to help us push through. What if we learned to do that with the reality of Christ's return? What if we allowed the reality that he is going to restore all things, those moments when the finances are like, tight and you feel pressure. One day he's going to restore all things and that pressure won't be there. I can make it. I can steward what he's given me. When there's the unexpected circumstance and when we're just going through the day-to-day -day life and we feel lonely, what if we looked towards Christ and his return and said, Catalina's coming. Oh, I can, we can do this. We need to serve. 
we need to wait. In Jesus' words, we need to engage in business until I come.